back from the dead. Last week, uh, when we started the message, we started with a, a fairly unlikely scenario, didn't we? The possibility of a cure for coronavirus by Christmas. This afternoon, this morning, we're going to begin with a, uh, another unlikely scenario. Not quite as unlikely, uh, but the scenario I want you to imagine is that you're learning to abseil. You're learning to abseil. Uh, it's maybe uh, less likely for some than others. Uh, but you begin, don't you, by getting a harness uh, and some ropes. Uh, you check the harness is secure. You, you, you make sure the ropes uh, will stand your weight. And then maybe you head to the climbing wall uh, and you begin to get some lessons. You start off on a small, low wall with some crash mats uh, underneath. Uh, the equipment seems strong. It appears uh, to do the job. Uh, but then there comes a time uh, when you have to answer the question, do I really trust this? Do I really trust this equipment? Uh, there's a moment where there's a pressing urgency to that question. And that moment is probably when you're about to go backwards off the edge of a really high cliff uh, for the first time. You've got a lot to lose. In fact, your life is on the line. And there's a pressing urgency to the question, do I really trust this? As Christians, uh, sometimes uh, there's a similar question with pressing urgency. Do I really trust this? Do I really trust Jesus? Do I really trust this gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection? Do I, I really believe in the hope of the resurrection, the hope of heaven, uh, living in God's place with him forever? That question usually presses in with urgency when there's a cost, when there's something for us to lose. What, what may that look like? Well, well, maybe there's the opportunity to give uh, financially in a costly way to the work of the gospel. And we ask ourselves, do I really believe this? Or maybe as a friendship on the line, if you're going to share the gospel with someone, they may, they, they may not want to be your friend. And you ask yourself, do I really trust this? Or possibly there's some moral battle waging and you know that if you're going to follow Jesus you have to let go of something and the question is that do I really trust Jesus or maybe it's in the workplace and if you're faithfully going to follow Jesus it means you're going to lose the respect of work colleagues maybe even lose your job and you have to ask yourself the question do I really trust this in those scenarios, the question comes with a more pressing urgency, doesn't it? Because of, because of the cost. And this is the last week we're looking at the life of Abraham in this series, uh, Promises and Pilgrims. Uh, and as we've gone through these chapters in Genesis, uh, we've seen repeatedly uh, that God can be trusted. He always keeps his promises. And today, Abraham is going to uh, face the question of whether we can trust God and there's going to be a real pressing urgency about that question Abraham's asked to put everything on the line to stake everything on God's trustworthiness 
But at the start of this chapter, we read that Abraham's faith is tested. Abraham's faith is tested. Uh, and it's, it's hard to think of a deeper, uh, more searching test of Abraham's faithfulness than the one that God gives him, isn't it? To offer up his son. This test is going to reveal Abraham's deepest desires and his uh, deepest attachments. So verse 1. God says to Abraham. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, replied Abraham. What's this test going to involve? Well, verse 2 tells us, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. It's a shocking verse, isn't it? Shocking verse. It's a, it's a perplexing verse. It's, it's an awful test, isn't it? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Did you notice uh, how often we're reminded in this chapter that uh, Isaac is Abraham's son? Over and over again. So, Verse 2, your only son whom you love. Verse 3, it says his son Isaac. Verse 6, he places the wood on his son Isaac. Verse 7, he says, yes, my son. Verse 8, uh, he takes the knife to slay his son. Verse uh, 12, again, your son, your only son. This is Abraham's son. What a, what a terrible thing to be asked. Isaac isn't just Abraham's son, is he? He's the, he's the promised child. We've waited with Abraham, uh, not quite 20, 25 years, uh, but over the last weeks, we waited for him, uh, for his son to be born. This miracle child. Isaac is the one through whom God is going to bring about his promises. He's the tangible evidence, uh, the only tangible evidence, really, that Abraham has. Uh, that God keeps his promises. He can touch Isaac. He can hold on to him. And now God calls him to sacrifice his son. Such a deep and searching test, isn't it? I think we must remember this is a, a test. God has no desire for child sacrifice. Child sacrifice was not uncommon in the ancient pagan world. But God, in his word, forbids child sacrifice in the strongest possible terms. And so, uh, here in this almost unique chapter, God commands Abraham to do something which he expressly forbids. And we should maybe be clear uh, this morning that God would not ask us to do something that he in his word has expressly forbidden. If you feel that God is leading you to lie or, or steal or, or, or commit adultery, you are being deceived. That's not God's leading. But here in Genesis uh, 22, this unique passage, Abraham has this uh, terrible test. How does Abraham respond? What, what's going through his mind at this point? It's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? 
We're not actually told a lot about what Abraham's thinking, but we are told what he does. And that's the important thing. His obedience is really swift. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. There's no dragging his heels. There's no bartering with God. There's no trying to find another way. He just swiftly obeys. And from verses 3 to 11, there's all these verbs that describe Abraham's action. First stage of his journey, verses 3 to 4, his bags are packed. The wood is cut for the sacrifice. Then after three days, he comes in sight of the place where he's going to offer Isaac on the altar. He says to the servants, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And so he leaves the servants behind and then begins stage two of the journey. Just Isaac and Abraham alone. It's quiet. Isaac's stooped over with the wood on his back for the sacrifice. Abraham's carrying the knife in one hand, uh, the fire in the other. And they set off up the hill. And then the silence is broken uh, by Isaac. A question that for Abraham would have been a heart-wrenching question. And knowing what's coming, it's a heart-wrenching question for us as, as readers. Verse 7, Isaac says to Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Isaac continues, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Children sometimes ask difficult questions, don't they? That's a, that's a difficult question for Abraham, isn't it? Abraham answers, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And they, they walk on together. Then they reach the place of sacrifice, verse 9, and it says, though the whole narrative then slows down, we get a kind of step-by-step description of exactly what is going on. The suspense builds. You can almost picture it in your mind's eye, can't you? Abraham builds the altar, we're told. These ancient hands picking up those stones and stacking them. Then he stacks the wood on the altar. And then he binds his son. And then he lays his son on the wood. And verse 10, he reaches out his hand. He takes the knife to slay his son. What's going through Isaac's mind at this point? Again, we're not told. The focus is very much on on Abraham. This is his test. And while we're not explicitly told what Abraham's thinking, there are a couple of of pointers in the passage that give us a glimpse into his logic. So what he says to the servants before he leaves in verse 5, did you notice that? He said, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go to worship. Then we will come back to you. He knows that whatever happens, the death of Isaac isn't going to be the last word. We will come back to you. And then his answer to Isaac's question. He's convinced that God himself will provide. These are are pointers to Abraham's internal logic. And the commentary in Hebrews is really really helpful, isn't it? Because it confirms uh, that. So listen carefully to these words. 
By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham knew, he was convinced that it was through Isaac that his offspring were going to be numbered. He was absolutely convinced of that. So even as he has the knife in his hand, even when he's about to slay his son, he reasons that death cannot be the end for Isaac. There there must be a resurrection. There must be. His trust is in the God who could raise the dead. And so that means he can live out costly, sacrificial obedience. And then while his hand is on the the knife, the angel calls out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he replies, here I am. And the angel says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham has passed the test. He's held fast to the blesser. And not the blessing. The letter to the Hebrews holds up Abraham as a a great example of faith for us this morning. Abraham trusts God's promises even in the face of death. Because he knows that God is able to raise the dead. That kind of uh, faith brings about radical, costly, sacrificial Obedience. Abraham can obey even if it means giving up everything because he knows uh, that ultimately he can lose nothing. And the question comes to us from Abraham's example this morning. The question is, is your confidence in God's promise, is your confidence in the gospel bringing about costly, sacrificial obedience to God's word? Are you convinced that God will do what he says he will do? And is that leading you in costly obedience? Because if we have a a well-reasoned faith like Abraham, we will uh, understand that even if obedience means losing money, even if obedience means losing friends, even if obedience means losing our reputation or even our life, we will know that ultimately we lose nothing. There's something of Abraham's logic in the words that that Jesus speaks to his disciples, isn't there? Remember these words. Jesus said to the crowd and his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Sure, many of you have heard of a man called Jim Elliot. You've heard the story of Jim Elliot before. Jim was born 1927. He was a, a gifted man with a bright future. I believe he was a good actor and a great public speaker. And Jim Elliot also became a Christian. And as a Christian, he had a growing desire to share the good news about Jesus with people who had never heard it before. 
And so in the early 1950s, after much planning, he and four other men, along with their wives, uh, set off to Ecuador to reach uh, a remote tribe with the good news about Jesus. And initially, contacts with this tribe seemed really promising. They seemed to be making progress. But then one day, January 1956, when they met with this tribe, they landed the plane uh, and they went out to meet the tribe. And all five men were slaughtered. They all lost their lives. It's costly obedience, isn't it? Costly o- obedience. Why do I use that uh, example? Is it because if we're really going to show costly obedience, we have to move abroad to be a missionary? No. We can live out costly obedience and in our own home, in our own community. I use that example because shortly before going to Ecuador in 1949, uh, Jim Elliot wrote some words in his diary which are now really famous. He wrote this. He was commenting on those words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. And he said that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the same kind of logic that Abraham has as he walks the mountain, isn't it? As he passes the test. And the reason Abraham is willing to lay Isaac on the altar, the reason Jim Elliot and his four friends were knowingly risk their lives is because they were certain that God would provide. They were certain uh, there was something that they couldn't lose. And that's what we uh, come to in the second half of the passage. God's certain provision. If you want to turn back to Genesis and we'll go back to the story. Here is Abraham. He has a hand on the knife. The voice from heaven comes to stop him. And Abraham looks up and he sees something that he hasn't noticed before. He sees a a ram caught in the, the thicket in the bushes. Verse 13, Abraham went over and he took the ram and it caught by his horns and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham has said, hadn't he, to Isaac, that the Lord would provide a lamb for the sacrifice and the Lord has provided. He always provides. There are parallels uh, between the provision for Isaac here in chapter 22 and the provision for Ishmael in the passage we looked at last week. Both are Abraham's sons. Both go out into the wilderness. Uh, Both uh, are at the point of death. In both accounts, the angel of the Lord intervenes. In chapter 21, Hagar's eyes are open to see a well. Here, Abraham lifts his eyes up to see a ram that he's not seen before. God provides in both chapters water to drink in chapter 21, a ram for a sacrifice in chapter 22. God always provides. His provision is certain. That's the second big message of this chapter. If the only message of this chapter was uh, the challenge of Abraham's faith, then the chapter would finish at at verse 12, but it doesn't. Abraham goes on to draw our attention uh, to the provision of the Lord through the name that he gives to the place. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount 
of the Lord, it shall be provided. It's funny, the tense there, isn't it? You would think Abraham would have said, on the mount of the Lord, it, it has been provided. But he says, on the mount of the Lord, it, it shall be provided. And then following the sacrifice of the ram, the angel speaks for a second time, the angel of the Lord, confirming the promises with an oath, promises that are now really familiar to us. It says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in you and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Abraham has sacrificed everything, but he's lost nothing. The promises are still certain. In fact, the promises now seem to be even more secure because of Abraham's obedience. If that were possible for them to be more secure. Did you see that? It says, because you have done this and not withheld your only son, I will bless you. Verse 18, because you have obeyed me. A promise that was previously solely grounded in the purposes of God seems to be now grounded both in the will of God and in the obedience of Abraham. God's provision is certain. And when we are confident of that fact, we will, we will live uh, lives of costly obedience i wonder this morning are you confident of god's provision are you confident that the lord will provide are you confident the lord has provided writing uh, about this chapter one commentator said this there's no other story in genesis indeed the whole of the old testament that can match the sacrifice of isaac for its haunting beauty and its theological depth. I think as I've looked at this passage this week, I would have to agree. This is a, a deep passage. It's not hard to see how this uh, climax uh, of Abraham's life is leading us to the great climax of history, Jesus' death and resurrection, is it? I'm sure you've probably uh, begun to notice already in this chapter the long shadow of the cross that is stretching uh, over the events that happen uh, here on, the, on Mount Moriah. There's the, the theme of substitutionary sacrifice, isn't there? A ram sacrificed in the place of Isaac. Substitutionary sacrifice becomes central to God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament. That's how they can be one with him. The temple, that was the place where all the sacrifices would happen. And actually... As the Old Testament story unfolds, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we read that Mount Moriah is the, is the exact place where the temple is built. 2 Chronicles 3, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. It's in this temple that people are going to come and meet the Lord, where they're going to find forgiveness and be one with him. In Jerusalem, on the Mount of the Lord, it, it will be provided. And then many years later, the Lord Jesus would die outside Jerusalem. The, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. A substitutionary sacrifice. 
And then there's the theme of obedience. The theme of obedience. Abraham's test is like no other, isn't it? I don't know how you would fare if you had Abraham's test. This is, we can't imagine a, a deeper test than that. And yet Abraham's obedience is quick. It's swift. It's, it's complete. And through his obedience, he seems to secure the promises of God. And as we look at Abraham's obedience, we're reminded of, of the obedience of the Lord Jesus. Who, who obeyed his father perfectly. And Paul writes uh, in, in Romans chapter 5 that through the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. As we see Jesus in the garden and listening on that intimate and heart-wrenching conversation between father and son. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. As Jesus sets his face resolutely towards Jerusalem, knowing that the cross awaits, but he doesn't falter, he doesn't hold back. He secures blessing for the world. Aren't we glad for the obedience of Jesus? As we look at Abraham uh, and we see his firm obedience and we, we realize that sometimes our faith falters. Often our obedience is incomplete. Aren't we thankful for the obedience of Jesus who makes us righteous? And then there's the, the language of this chapter. If we manage to miss it up to this point, the language of this chapter would surely remind us of Jesus. Take your son, your only son whom you love. That's how uh, the everlasting father speaks about his eternal son, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. At the baptism, you are my son whom I, whom I love. And then in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, Paul reminds us of this. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul's saying if God hasn't held back his son, he's not going to hold anything back. He's given his everything. God's provision is certain. I want us to, to see that again this morning. And as we look at the cross and see what God has done for us, to see what he's provided for us, I want it to lead us in costly, sacrificial obedience. We may give everything, but ultimately we lose nothing. We've got a, a song to close with. Uh, the song is When I Survey. And I'm just going to pop into the back and get a hymn book and read a couple of verses to you just uh, while we have some quiet. And we're going to think about the cross and remember God's provision and then think about our response. Let me pop and get a hymn book.
when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And this is the response, verse 4. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life.